2: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Catherine Shen. When I was a kid, my mom gave me a lot of graphic novels. That's actually how I learned about many famous people and their stories, like Florence Nightingale, the Wright Brothers, and Marco Polo. I also remember reading The Diary of Anne Frank in elementary school, which left a profound impact that I still think about today. Graphic novels played a huge role in my reading experience. And when it comes to the steep rise in book challenges being documented by the American Library Association, graphic novels are frequent targets. Maya Kobe's graphic novel, Genderqueer, was named the top-challenged book of 2022 and 2021 by the organization, and the graphic novel adaptation of The Diary of Anne Frank has been banned in several school districts in Florida and Texas. Coming up, team services. Librarian Mary Richardson describes the explosion of interest in graphic novels she's seeing in Simsbury. But first, why is this format uniquely vulnerable to these kinds of requests? Here to share what they're seeing nationally is the director of the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom, Deborah Caldwell-Stone. Thank you so much, Deb, for joining us. I'm glad to be here. And for our listeners, if you're a comic book fan, graphic novel readers, you can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Deb, I want to start by asking about this specific format with you. What is it about graphic novels? You know, why are they low-hanging fruit for these sort of attacks that we're seeing today?
3: Um, frankly, because they're, uh, you know, they present images um, and it's right there. Uh, for anyone to see. There's less, um, you know, you're not visualizing something in your mind uh, as you do with text. You're looking at an image. Uh, and I think we've been uniquely trained to see images in a different way than we see text. And actually, there's a very long history of treating uh, visual storytelling, graphic storytelling as um, low-value literature. You know, we can think back to being told that comic books weren't good reading, uh, were trash, and I think we carry that heritage forward to today. You know, uh, I remember working with, um, actually, librarians in the past who were firmly convinced that graphic novels were less than text-based, and I think anyone who's read Alison Bechdel's Fun Home, uh, or Gender Queer, or similar works, uh, can see that, in fact. Uh, Graphic novels are literature that should be valued and upheld in the same way as any other work of literature.
2: So I think I want to come back to the history in a little bit, but I wanted to also point out that while graphic novels are common targets now, it's more often works about diverse lived and living experiences or by diverse authors, uh, whether illustrative or non-illustrative. Is that right? That's
3: absolutely correct
2: you know, we've been looking at our data for the
3: last few years and overwhelmingly the books that are being challenged are books that deal with um, the lives and experiences of LGBTQIA persons, deal with their concerns. Um, and we're also seeing a good number of books challenged because of their discussion of or treatment of race and racism in the United States as well. And so really as a general category, books that deal with the experiences of marginalized communities, diverse books, um, diverse graphic novels are the ones that are most challenged these days, Um, and we seldom see challenges to what you might call classic works, Um, but even Shakespeare has come under attack these days, so uh, you just never know.
2: And we know that the lists uh, have played a huge part in this sort of surge of removal requests. And I know this is something we talked about the last time you were on the show where people go down the list and basically go to their libraries and ask them to be removed. Can you talk about that? Especially, for example, you know, we are talking about the graphic novel, Gender Queer. Do you know how many of these mm-hmm. parents have actually read the novel before they're asking for it to be banned?
3: Well, what we're finding is that those who demand the removal of the book from libraries, uh, frequently have not seen anything more than a few panels from the graphic novel on social media or in summaries presented by book band groups like rated books or or book looks. Um, You know, we've actually seen have noted that there are websites out there where you can click on a school district in a hot map. And it provides you with a handy dandy list of bad books and instructions on how to take that list to your school board or your library board and demand the removal of books. In fact, uh, 90% of the challenges last year in 2022 that were reported to us involved challenges to more than one title at once. of those were challenges to more than 100 books. And to us, it's very clear that we're dealing with an organized campaign um, that's targeting entire genres of books that, uh, you know, these aren't books that people are you know, seeing their student read, their child read, looking at it, having a concern to take to a librarian or a teacher. These are organized groups uh, demanding massive censorship of all books dealing with LGBTQ themes or dealing with sex ed or race. Um, They're not reading these books at all. Um, You know, in fact, when we looked at our data for 2023 and it's preliminary data, Of the 100 most challenged titles uh, this year, 99 percent, 99 of those books, excuse me, uh, are listed on the censorship sites, book looks or rated books there. You know, so it's clear to us where the source of the challenges are coming from.
2: And so at these cha- as these challenges are ongoing what you just said is it doesn't seem like it's changed much since we last had this conversation and as these campaigns still continues you know has the national department of education chimed in on this you know what's the latest on that Uh absolutely um you know the office for
3: civil rights in the department of education has taken note of the fact that when you begin to ban books dealing with gender identity, sexual orientation, race, ethnicity, um, it sends a real message to students. And in fact, it can create a hostile educational environment uh, that the DOE is anxious to remedy. Um, And so they're now encouraging individuals Students, parents, um, uh, staff to report to the DOE, the Department of Office, uh, their Office of Civil Rights, any instance where book banning uh, campaigns to remove books are creating that hostile educational environment for gay students, transgender students, students of color. And they're actually investigating that. So actually, they've now appointed a uh, uh, person who's being called the book ban um, but they now have appointed an assistant secretary, Matt Nosenchuk, to be in charge of investigating these instances where book banning is creating a bad environment for young, uh, young people in, in the school community.
2: And joining us now to bring this conversation back home to Connecticut is Samantha Lee. She's the chair of the Connecticut Library Association's Intellectual Freedom Committee and the head of reference services at the Enfield Public Library. Thank you so much, Sam, for being with us again.
0: It's always a pleasure.
2: And we also have with us Douglas Lord, who's the director of the C.H. Booth Library in Newtown, and he's also the immediate Mm -hmm. past president of the Connecticut Library Association. Welcome to the show, Doug.
1: Good morning thanks so much for having uh cla on
2: of course and want to start with sam real quick you know you've been listening to what deborah has to say is what she's describing similar to what you're seeing here in connecticut
0: absolutely we're seeing uh the national trends play out locally in connecticut challenges um in the public schools we are absolutely seeing those targeted books for lgbt titles and authors um we're seeing a coordinated effort um in schools and in public libraries challenging those titles it is absolutely a reflection of the national scene
2: and Doug you just stepped down as president of the Connecticut Library Association and you told Hearst Connecticut earlier this year that you haven't seen this level of baloney with book challenges and censorship in your lifetime you know can you talk about the context behind that comment because it was about a challenge over two specific graphic novels right
1: Right, that's correct. Um, in Newtown, you know the very the very local uh, setting is this is very similar to Connecticut, very similar to the broader U.S. Um, Connecticut is actually in the top ten in the U.S. for um, number of challenges to, to books, and many communities, Newtown included, are just going through it, trying to figure out. Almost, what the timbre of their community wants to be. Who who does? What what does the community want to reflect? Um, Newtown, for example, has um, kindness. There's a whole curriculum component in Newtown um, about kindness, and I was really attracted to Newtown for that specific reason. And then to see the um, the various voices coming through on the books, um, blankets and Flamer in Newtown was was pretty, it was pretty disheartening. But the Board of Ed is really just trying to to struggle through this, the Board of Ed and the administrators are doing their best at a difficult time to, to try to essentially please everybody, which may or may not work in the in the in the final analysis of that. And it's definitely hard to see who would want to volunteer for Board of Ed in these, in these times in these very uh, critical times.
2: Right, and and because we're talking about graphic novels today, and that the two titles you just mentioned are graphic novels. So, what are your thought about this format? You know, what do you think is it about this format that's causing so much conversation going on right now?
1: Well, very similar to what Deborah said, um, it's more than just words. I mean, your your mileage will vary with graphic novels because there are there are many different types of um, visual artists which have different styles and different appeals to different kinds of people. But when they're discussing sensitive topics, it's just a a, um, a format that is rife for misunderstanding and in in, in creating drama. Um, graphic novels are absolutely fantastic for reluctant readers. And um, it is very easy to take panels out of context, even in the most, um, I don't know, silly or Uh, benign of circumstances like pride and prejudice and zombies right like it's it's just there's there's attraction there to get students and reluctant readers into literature but there's also circumstances where um people are gonna people are gonna freak out because either they don't have anything else to freak out about or um they have some sort of uh hidden agenda maybe um, so it's while it's difficult to say it is just a, a format that is um, that can be very difficult, uh, especially when there's so many grown-ups making so many pronouncements about the protection of children and essentially that's what everybody is is talking about right is keeping the keeping children safe, keeping students on track, you know not letting anything negative happen to the to the kids. And for what it's worth, I mean most of the, most of the people are very concerned with that.
2: And because this is, this was a debate that was happening in Newtown earlier this summer, has that debate settled, Doug? Do you have any updates there?
1: It is settled. Um, they are trying, they are, they're making str- strides forward and they are, you know, coming up with some administrative paths to opt in, to opt out. Um, essentially, I mean, uh, A librarian, any librarian will will say, you know, please don't politicize reading or learning, but this is the the climate, you know, the landscape that we're dealing with. Will it work? It probably will work in the short term. Uh, It may not last, especially given the very sophisticated and. um, 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 Smart uh, degree of the students these days, they have so much to share so much. That they can uh, lead the grown-ups and the administrators and the teachers to. So, I mean, whatever kind of rule or you know guideline is put down, if if students want to get at these materials, they're going to get at these materials. There's no there's no way around that.
2: And Sam, you know, as we're witnessing these campaigns going on, these challenges going on, how many active book challenges have there been in Connecticut this year? Because I think last year we heard in May it was 38, which was up by almost 10 from that time uh, last year. Um, Have you heard this top 10 stat that Doug mentioned as well?
0: Oh yeah, I've definitely heard uh, Doug's staff there. We are seeing more challenges. We've seen um, consistent challenges. It was interesting because at the at tail end of the school year last year, there were some grumbles around the state about some challenges. And of course, since the school year was closing, uh, those challenges um, took a vacation over the summer with the kids. And we're hearing about some more grumblings in various school districts also now picking up those challenges and picking up where they left off. But I wanted to go back to um what Doug had mentioned about the school district and their platform of kindness, which is really interesting to me because they're every school has some sort of kindness platform or anti-bullying platform. And that goes back to this understanding of tolerance. But there's the paradox of tolerance. What do you tolerate? And what's a problem? Because we end up wanting to be tolerant and kind to everything and everyone, including views that might be intolerant. And we get this paradox of tolerance. How much will we tolerate of the intolerance? And i think we need to change our frame of mind with that and think about it as a social construct of tolerance that oh sorry the social the social contract of tolerance that you are protected by tolerance as long as you are also tolerant so as soon as somebody says that they are intolerant they are hateful or they make accusations of uh, another group that are unfounded they are now no longer protected by the social contract of tolerance, and that will not be tolerated in, in the social setting.
2: And Deb, I wanna bring you back real quick just to respond to what Doug and Sam has to say about these Connecticut examples, or do you have any thoughts about, about Connecticut here? Is it unique is it, or is it something that you're seeing across the board?
3: No, we're, we're seeing these challenges in all 50 states. It's not a partisan, You know, it's not based on red or blue or anything like that. Um, But what we are seeing uh, is this kind of coordination um, and and advancing a message that certain books are to be, you know, this idea of uh, are not to be tolerated, to be frank, um, that they have to be excluded to keep children safe. I would want to note that when we talk about keeping children safe, uh, when we talk about parents' rights, we are actually not talking about something that's very important, and that's the young person's own right to read their own First Amendment rights. And we neglect that conversation when we uh, talk about these campaigns and the individuals pushing them. You know, we need to remember that young people need to be at the center of our concern when we're talking about taking away their books, because that's what we're doing here.
2: And Sam, really quickly here, you know, with what Deb just said, too, can you also explain how the Connecticut Library Association supports librarians in these removal requests and how that might process differ between a school library and a public library?
0: So uh, my committee, the uh, Intellectual Freedom Committee of the Connecticut Library Association, we provide support to uh, libraries, library workers as they're dealing with challenges. So when they get a uh reconsideration request or if they're reading their community and sensing that there may be a challenge coming uh, our committee provides support to them so we help them look over their uh, reconsideration policies and procedures we tell them to follow their policies and procedures we help them do uh, research on the titles that are being challenged Um, and we also provide support it is a uh, challenging time uh, for those who are going through challenges. So we provide emotional support. We are a sounding board. We hear all their frustrations. Uh, we also help them identify colleagues and partners um, and community partners that would support them uh, while they're going through a challenge and support uh, the retention of titles. Uh, when it comes to the differences in challenges and that process between schools and public libraries, Uh, it's quite different. So public libraries have a responsibility to protect uh, the First Amendment right to access free speech for everybody in the community. When it comes to students, uh, absolutely, like Deborah said, students have um, First Amendment rights while they are in the school building and in educational settings. So there's a delicate balance between maintaining that access in the school libraries. Um, Courts have recognized that school boards have broad discretion over curriculum, but that's not what's happening with these challenges. These challenges are targeting school library books and are therefore targeting students' First Amendment rights to free speech.
2: And Mm -hmm. with what you just said too, Sam, we also know that you lean on the state's definition of obscenity in a lot of these challenges, which is also something that we have spoke about before. Can you touch on that? Is that still something that you're leaning into?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Especially when the the arguments um, for challenging is using legal definitions that are taking out of context. Obscenity has a legal definition, um, and we do rely on that quite a bit to defend titles. Uh, they, the titles that are being challenged do not meet the legal definition of obscenity and therefore are protected uh, First Amendment expressions. And it's as simple as that. We need to protect first amendment expression
2: and mm-hmm. Doug, we're going to hear about how kids are responding to graphic novels in a little bit but would love to just get some final thoughts from you before we move on you know any words of wisdom for adults who may be misunderstanding this format or may want to uh, give it a shot but they don't know how
1: well I, I am uh, of the opinion that most librarians are of the opinion that you should read everything but especially the things that um, other people are objecting to um, I I think it was Oscar Wilde who said the books that the world calls immoral are books that show the world its own shame now librarians are also not about shame but um there are so many excellent graphic novels out there that don't that are not controversial at all they're just slices of life just like fiction so most I would say all public libraries in Connecticut have a pretty good collection and there's really excellent um stuff out there um on almost any topic and it it can be Fiction, and it can also be nonfiction like graphic the graphic format is a great way to describe like medical things that are going on inside your body because it's very clear that artists have um have skill with that but I would just um recommend people browse and librarians are great at helping people find what it is they're looking for so you can come up to a reference desk or a circ person and with this very vague idea of i want to do try a thing or do something and the librarians will generally help you um and you'll be very pleased with the results i i guarantee
2: well thank you so much you've been listening to douglas lord who's the director of the ch booth library in newtown thank you so much for your time this morning doug oh thanks so much for having us on And you've also been hearing from Deborah Caldwell-Stone, who is the head of the American Library Association Office for Intellectual Freedom. Thank you so much for being with us this morning, Deb. And we also have Sam Lee with us, who is with the Connecticut Library Association, and she will be uh, on the show for the rest of the morning. And coming up next though, we hear from a teen services librarian in Simsbury about why graphic novels and comic books are flying off her shelves like hotcakes. And for our listeners, if you're a graphic novel and comic book fan, you can join the conversation 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
1: So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery.
4: For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash
2: health. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're exploring the rise in book challenges librarians are fielding and why graphic novels are common targets. The American Library Association named Maya Kobe's graphic memoir, Queer, the top challenged book of 2021. And joining us now is Mary Richardson. She's a teen services librarian at the Simsbury Public Library, as well as the co-host of the Book Jam podcast. Thank you so much for jamming with us this morning, Mary.
5: Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
2: And we still have Sam Lee with us. She's the chair of the Connecticut Library Association's Intellectual Freedom Committee, as well as the head of reference services at the Enfield Public Library. So Mary, I want to jump straight to you. you know, you've know, you been listening along this hour. Let's talk specifically about Maya Kobe's graphic memoir, Gender Queer. What are your thoughts about this being a common target?
5: Um, I think that because of a couple of panels, there is a more conservative group out there that has just
2: Taken those
5: completely out of context, like what Doug was saying earlier, um, and it's so interesting because when I think about that, I actually read that book when it was published. I remember ordering it. I was in a different library, and I remember when I ordered it, I was like, because I used to order all the graphics for every department in that library because it was much smaller. Um, I remember thinking, oh, I know some kids that are gonna read this and see see themselves, or like you know get a lot out of this because they're they're on their gender journey and i just put it on the shelf and never made a comment and it would just like occasionally shirk and it was fine and but i also wondered person's ever going to challenge this because I can see a certain perspective not being tolerant of this at all. And um, but again, yeah, when I think about this book, the, the panel that I always think about is not any of the incendiary stuff that you see that gets passed around on social media um, and called obscenity. It's actually the there's a, um, there's a I think it's almost a full page panel. And it's basically the author um, as a teen in a snail shell and every segment has all of these questions about their identity and cuz uh, Maya Kabab uses these no pronouns um, and I remember reading that and thinking like, this is so relatable because even if you aren't questioning your sexuality or your gender, you still like, who am I? Like, what, what am I doing? Cause like those teen years are totally a time to try on different identities. Like, are you a sports kid? Maybe you'll do the school play. Like, Oh my God, do I like emo music? Oh no, I like pop music. Like, it's just, you can try on all these different things cause you're still trying to figure out who you are as a person. And that one page panel, the illustration on it was so relatable. I was just like, this book is amazing.
2: Well, and I love that you say that because I read the memoir as well, and it's it's a memoir. It's about Maya's experience and her, uh, their questions of of themselves as they're as they're as they're growing and learning, as well as their family and friends learning and growing with with Maya. And I was definitely an emo kid for sure, um, but I'm sure a lot of my friends probably would have appreciated um, to read something like Gender Queer when we were teens. And talking about teens too, you know, Mary. Shifting the focus here a little bit from how adults often misinterpret them, as you were saying, with with certain panels and what Doug was saying earlier too. You know, how do you see kids respond to graphic novels and comic books? Are they are they are they surprising to you? Or are they, or are you like that's totally on point?
5: Um, I grew up as a comic book kid, so I come to this pretty like openly. Like when I became a public librarian, so I used to work in academia. Like I was like, no, you should all be buying graphic novels. Why are you not like? <laughs> I've always been a big proponent of it because like I see kids like just grab them off the shelf and like read them like my number one, probably everybody's number one graphic novel right now, um, if it's not manga is gonna be the heart series because right when it dies down a new season drops and people just like kids like lose their minds over it because it's they're so excited for it um because also like we don't really have a lot of great teen programming that's like made for teens and there's definitely a very teen perspective in that show and it's also just incredibly sweet um and so and the fact that the first volume was actually um it's on the nutmeg noms for a uh, high school list for this year. And too. like, it's just, everybody loves it. It's so good. Alice Osman can't write a bad book. Like she's great.
2: Well, and as we were preparing for this show too, and I shared at the top of the hour that I grew up with a lot of graphic novels. And as we were thinking about this, honestly, those were what were memorable for me. I mean, to this day, I can tell you moments that I remember from, from Florence Nightingale or the diary of Anne, Anne Frank. And so it, it has an impact and a good impact. And we know that graphic novels and comic books are engaging kids, especially now at a higher vocabulary level. So not just retaining the stories, but vocabulary as well. Can you talk about that?
5: Oh yeah, like uh, every summer um, I always like joke um that i have to tap the poster uh there's a Jarrett Lerner who does graphic novels for kids did a, a really cool infographic poster and i guess an to producer where he talks about like the actual vocabulary gained by reading graphic novels and also just like how if your kid is reading a book that's for their age quote unquote um it, the graphic novel is still going to be a little bit higher and also how your brain interacts with a visual uh manifestation of the written word um, is a little bit different than how and if you're looking at like a non illustrative work I think neither one is like bad or good. Like they're both great. Like I'm not trying to say like graphic novels are better because I'm not, that's a false argument. No, thank you. Um, They're both great. But I'll have like parents who are like, well, I want my kid to read something that are not graphic novels. And I'm just like, why? (laughs) And they're like, well, because I want them to read real books. I'm like, graphic novels and manga are real books. They have like, some of these books have real experiences because they're memoirs or they're historical retellings. like we have a graphic novel adaptation of Anne Frank's diary. Um, There's a graphic novel adaptation of Slaughterhouse-Five. That's amazing um there's so there's all this stuff that you can do and like i'm always like don't make me top the sign because realistically too if it's summer like your kid probably has a summer reading assignment great get them get that over with early and then let your kids read whatever they want because my job as a librarian um, aside from programming is also to help instill a lifelong love of reading and if graphic novels are the way to that We're going to do it. I'm going to jump on that train. Like, sure. If I have a kid that's like, Mary, we don't have the new Demon Slayer. I'm like,
2: we're going to get the next volume.
5: Um, I will not buy one piece though. That's just a space issue. There's over a hundred volumes.
2: I was actually just recommended Demon Slayer, so nice to know that there are a hundred of them that I'm looking forward to soon. (laughs) That's One Piece, sorry. Um, (laughs) Clarification, One Piece, but also Demon Slayer is a long series as well. But who else is on that train? It's Jerry Craft. He is a Connecticut native and comic book artist, and he spoke about this while on Connecticut Public's weekly talk show, Disrupted, earlier this year. Let's take a quick listen.
4: When I was a kid, the one thing I absolutely hated to do was to read books um I did not become a reader until I was an adult basically with kids of my own because then I started reading them bedtime stories because I wanted them to embrace books in a way that I never had you know when you're not a reader I always say well what would have made me a reader one is finding mirrors finding a kid who looked like me acted like me but you know it's not depressing you know that that was one and the other was in the graphic novel format I think that um kids who are more visual learners uh can really get so much more you know like for people who say oh graphic novels aren't real books you know it's like it, it stimulates two sides of your brain because the kid can read the pictures I mean look at the pictures decide what's to look at the words and then depending on how those go together it could mean something completely different, you know? So there's a whole lot more to graphic novels than people think. And it's not like all of a sudden when I'm writing a graphic novel, I don't concern myself with plot and character arc and story arc. Of course, I put all that stuff in there. Um, so I think that for people like, well, my kid only reads graphic novels. What do I do? Like, let them, because they're reading. That's like saying, oh, my kid only eats vegetables. Well, okay, they're eating healthy.
2: Mary, what's your response to Jerry here?
5: Uh, he's 100% right. Like Those are all of the things. Also, if you haven't read the New Kids series, you totally should. It's great. Um, but yeah it's, it's yeah, I mean, and sometimes you'll have a kid that's like, oh, I read all these graphic novels, but I also want to read, like, a non-illustrative work. What do you got? And I'm like, great, cool. I'm like, we have more books for you. And then we have some kids who are just like, no, I'm reading this book, and this is the, I, this is my jam, you know? And I often find a lot of kids that are really into manga don't want to read graphic novels, because that's the art style that they like, right and that's where they feel comfortable. Um, but also, just, like, adults can be stubborn about what books they like. Kids can be, too. And it's always the whole thing of, like, trying to, like, like slowly kind of gently open them up to something else in a new experience, which graphic novels also do so very well.
2: Sure. And Mary, I don't know if this is something that you have seen, but with kids who are loving graphic mob- novels or manga, you know, are you seeing their parents opening to that too? Are they reading it together? Because I've certainly heard a lot of parents who are who are like, oh, my kid's really into that. So let me let me give it a go. You know, have you seen that?
5: Um, yeah, actually, I I see it more, I feel like, in the past couple of years than I did, like, 10 years ago when I first started. because um, I think that we as a society have, like, come, maybe, like, turned a 90-degree corner on how we feel about graphic novels for the most part. And I think also educators using them in the classroom as well has been very helpful. Um, and, you know, graphics are also great for kids with learning disabilities because, like, it makes decoding so much easier, like, all the stuff that Jerry Craft was talking about. Um, and how you engage with a graphic novel is not always the same for everybody like my brother um, is older than me and so like that's where i got my love of comics was from him and stealing his comic books when i wasn't supposed to but like we had a whole talk one time about like how we engage in them because i always read the text first because i'm such a text-driven person and then i look at the pictures he would always look at the pictures first and then read the text or the dialogue which i was just like wow because i neither one of us had thought about it um, and then I started kind of paying more attention to like what people are talking about, like when they're engaging with them. Um, but yeah, so I think it's it's definitely a thing.
2: Yeah, that is so fascinating because like we do all kind of see it differently, even though we're looking at the same thing. And Sam, you know, you've been listening to this conversation as well. You know, what else can you would you like to add to this?
0: I love Jerry Krapp saying that like you- if your kid's reading, just let them read whatever they're enjoying. Because at the moment you make reading a chore through the summer reading program, you kill the joy out of it. And there's nothing worse and stunting to a child than to tell them that, no, they can't read that um, because it's too young or um, kids will find a way. They will find a way to read um, and get joy out of it. But as soon as you Take the joy away from it and turn it into a chore. You ruin that love of reading. You ruin the chance to encourage curiosity and um, self edification. Um, I, I love, I love it when I see a kid just rip through the library and a parent encouraging that because yeah, they might find something that's a little older for them. They might find something that's a little younger for them, uh, but it's up to the kid to decide. And isn't it such a beautiful thing? Uh, To encourage a kid to read voraciously and discover a world on their own and encourage that sense of curiosity than it is to shut them down and eliminate those possibilities for them.
2: And Sam, you know we've been we've been focusing a lot about younger readers, and because we also know that many of these illustrative books about puberty are also sometimes common targets, especially you know as we're having this conversation today. Can you distinguish this genre from the formats that we're talking about, and and why is this troubling?
0: So there's graphic non uh, graphic novel nonfiction. Um, which does, co- and there are the books that cover uh, puberty and the like. But there's also graphic uh, nonfiction memoirs, um, like Doug said. There's books that cover um, medical conditions in graphic uh, in graphic novel format, and all of that is just to convey information in a in a medium that is easy to consume and not intimidating. Um, when it comes to Uh, the puberty books, I think, oh my gosh, what I would have given to have one of those when I was growing up. Because puberty is awkward for everyone. It is not a good time. Um, But having the privacy of a book, having the intimacy of a book and a very um, objective narrator guiding you through that process through a book um, and normalizing all of that is so empowering um and i think that gets lost in the noise that when we are talking about these books and say and somebody is saying that they're obscene what they're forgetting about is the good that these books can do and in, in eliminating the shame i think back always to mr rogers who said if it's mentionable it's manageable and for kids that is huge The moment you mention puberty the moment you mention the need for deodorant with body odor or pads and tampons it's a moment that eliminates the shame and makes it manageable not given the opportunity to encounter these puberty books means that there's no opportunity for them to eliminate the shame and we just don't need that as a society we don't need to be ashamed of our bodies anymore
2: and really quickly here, Mary, what are your thoughts about puberty books?
5: Oh yeah, they definitely have a place at the library. Um in basically hundred percent everything that Sam just said, it is a super awkward, weird time. Um but I know some of the challenges too on some of these books are not just because they are illustrative, but also because they include LGBT uh Q plus or LGBTQI plus themes. Um and like that hasn't really been seen in those type of like health uh Uh, Sorry, I'm stealing my words. Uh, Hasn't really been seen in the sort of books until like the past, like maybe 10 years. Um, And, you know, you can look and see what's challenged overall in the top 10 book challenges and you'll see a theme there.
2: You've been listening to Connecticut librarians Mary Richardson and Sam Lee, who will be staying with us. We'll continue this conversation about graphic novels after a quick break. You can also give us a call, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're focused on graphic novels and comic books. Are you a fan? Let us know, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And back with us are Connecticut librarians Mary Richardson and Sam Lee. So, Mary, we've been talking about there's there's been this huge interest, this huge explosion um, you've ex- you've observed over the last decade in terms of uh, graphic novels, as well as the market of books. Can you tell us what you're seeing?
5: Uh, publishers have figured out that kids love graphic novels, and so we're getting a huge push for them is really. So it's like the intersection of art and capitalism as it comes together. Um, but I also so I think that's part of it. Um. Because, like, I remember, like, maybe, like, eight years ago, I feel like we didn't have as many, like, middle grade graphics as we do now. And it's just, it's just boomed. Um, and also, like, you look at, like, the publishers. I can't remember. There's, like, a, there's, like, a publishing group that, or somebody that tracks, like, the stuff. And, like, the, you know, you don't actually don't see superhero trade, trade like, graphic novels come in until like maybe around 50 of the top 100 of sets that sold every year if you're just looking at the graphic novels it's all dog man and all that kind of stuff in the in the top 10 right um which is great um but i also think on the other side of it too you've got this um was it i listened to a podcast recently called sold a story which talked about like the the science of reading and how like Uh, a lot of kids aren't getting phonics in their schools. They're getting sight reading instead. And so that's creating like a reading struggle um, because not all kids can deal with the sight word situation. And 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 it also got into like the neuroscience of like how, how reading happens and whatnot. And just like how this happened across the country in the U S and I was like, Oh, Anecdotally, I wonder if that's also why graphic novels are so huge because you have a kid that struggles to read, but you give them a graphic and they feel more comfortable. And like, that's the whole thing, right? If you struggle to read, but you can read a graphic novel, you want to try and like bolster that confidence and get that kid feeling comfortable. Because if you're reading and it's always a challenge and it feels hard, like, you're not going to do it, you're going to go do something else.
2: Right. And even just as a consumer, I see the walls of manga explode as I as I age. And because when I was a teenager, there certainly was not that many translated mangas available. Um, I think I would have, Teenage Cat probably would have had a, a much better time in high school if that was available to me. Um, and with what you just said, too, with, with the various sciences behind perhaps graphic novels uh, is a great tool for kids. Do you find that illustrative works are a way to eventually engage kids in non-illustrative works like is that something that you're seeing at all? sometimes
5: I uh, it's it, I always feel like every teen is like a case-by-case basis sure. because they all have like what they like to read and what they don't like to read um, and yeah I have actually had um a middle schooler like come to me and who I knew was just a straight up manga reader and like came to me and was like hey I want to start the school year off a little bit differently I want to challenge myself can you recommend some non-illustrative works? Um, and of course, like they didn't use those terms. That's just me talking. But, and I was like, oh, yeah, sure. And so I was like, let me give you like five books because I'm, I kind of know what you like, I kind of don't know what you like. And also, like, if the pacing isn't fast enough for you, like, just go to the next book. Um, cause I always try and send a teen home with more than one because, like, you know, there's there's not enough time in the world to spend on reading a book you're not engaged with. Like, just go to the next one. It's fine. Um, and so, you know, they came back like the next week. And we're like, oh, my God, I love this book. It was so great. And I was like, oh, cool. Um, but then also, you know, will ask me like, oh, hey, do you have the new volume of like, um, you know blue lock or something and i'm like
2: oh yeah it's on its way so you know it goes back and forth there's room for both sure and as you're saying that i'm actually remembering this so when i was in i want to say like fifth grade i was obsessed with this manga series called case close and that actually eventually led to a lifelong obsession with sherlock holmes and you can argue whether or not that's classic literature but that's certainly classic crime fiction so i'm just going to leave that there with you as you're saying that mary and um can you also Talk about, we talked about parents being involved and where parents are concerned. We also chatted about the temptation to sort of manage kids' reading. So you have this theory about why kids might reread a beloved title over and over again. Can you talk about why it's important to allow that?
5: Oh, yeah. Um, Sam kind of touched on this a little bit when she was talking. But yeah. So from my perspective, uh, middle school is like not great. Right. It's awkward. Uh, Like we are full swing puberty. There are social hierarchies like Everything is changing, right? Everything that you knew a couple of years ago is changing. And then like, right when you kind of get it down, you have to go into high school and everything changes again. And you're like, oh God, what is all this? Um, and so a lot of times you'll see a kid that's like rereading Pers- the Percy Jackson series for like the umpteenth time. And like, I'll have like a parent that's frustrated about it. I'm like, nope, nope, let them read it because A, they love reading that book. B, they get older, that book stays the same age. So they will actually get different things out of it because I know when I read a book, as I age, I often get different perspectives. But the other thing too is that there's a safety in that book, right? That book doesn't change. Everything around me is changing. But this one thing that I love Percy stays the same, right? Mm -hmm. Like I will age a little bit with him, but like at the same point, like some point Percy will be younger than me and I will be older, but that's okay because the story is always the same. And that's something that you can count on. And like between everything being so online and like, you know, global historical events happening every 20 minutes right now, um, like the safety of having a tried and true book, that's your very favorite thing, whether it's case closed, um, great manga series, it's awesome. Um, or, you know, the Richie Jackson series. Like, it's that's where we're at, I think.
2: And Sam, I want some final thoughts from you as we only have a couple minutes here, but I feel like the theme of today's conversation, to it too, is like, man, being a teenager is awkward. It's not a good time. Books are really important for this time period. You know, what are your thoughts about that?
0: I mean, my own experience as a teenager, I ran into um, American Born Chinese by Jean Luen Yang and what a perfect book <laughs> that book just found its audience with me and my brother because as soon as i read it i handed it off to him um like talking about the uh, the puberty experience the adolescent experience but also the chinese american adolescent experience that was a book that was transformational um and i was able to point to it and say okay it's awkward it's not great but there it is and i'm not alone and that felt amazing um and that made me feel less alone and having a graphic novel do that and having graphic novels available to do that to all sorts of people um i think it's worth protecting
2: and mary we've been talking about you know all kinds of of things related to graphic novels today is there something that we haven't touched on that you'd like to share
5: um Not really. I think we hit most of the high points. Uh, But yeah, like read graphic novels. They're amazing. Uh, Like where I work in Simsbury, we've got like our children's collection downstairs. There's the teen collection upstairs, but I have a split between manga and graphics. And we also have an adult collection too. And like there's just no lack of great things to read right now. Um, Like I just read like the newest Batman. I'm loving it. But then I also went and finally read Kate Beaton's Ducks, which was like an Eisner winning uh, graphic novel memoir from like I think a year or two ago. Um, So like there's just there's so much good stuff. Like I cannot just go go read a book. If you don't have a library card, get a library card. Check out some graphic novels. You'll be a better person for it.
2: And really quickly here, too, because we've been talking a lot about kids wanting to read more books after their foray into graphic novels. You know, I I know you're in the youth section, but are you seeing adults wanting to to read more classics or non-illustrative works if they have delved into graphic novels?
5: Oh yeah, I feel like every library I've been at in the past like ten years of my career as a public librarian, I've built an adult graphic novel collection because there's so much stuff coming out now. Um, or there's some stuff that I'm like, ah, oh, this is a little bit too much to fit in the teen section because I do have like fifth and sixth graders that will come up and grab stuff, and I'm like, yeah, I don't need all that blood and gore. We'll put that in the adult section. Um, but you know, and those are also books that are like, like, like Image, for example, as a publisher that pr- produces a lot of like adult um, graphic novels. Um, like Saga is a good example of like one of their titles. Um, But yeah, so uh, we started building this collection. There was a little bit on the shelf when I got here, um, but we're definitely seeing it kind of like slowly uptick. Is it at the level of like the general like adult fiction collection? No, but it's also a much smaller collection. And I think it's working pretty well. And I'm always like, oh, hey, did you know we have this collection? And adults are like, wait, what? And so, and then I'm also finding some of my older high school teens are starting to find that collection too, as they're aging into it. Um, And yeah, I think it's pretty great. Um, I also want to say one of the things I, I strongly believe is that teens will often self-select for themselves. So, like, there's the whole thing that we've talked about, like, uh, adults trying to, like, you know, keep kids safe. Um, kids know what they can handle and what they can't. And they actually will tell you. So and like they they're not going to like it's it's cool. Kids have the freedom to read, too.
2: Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us, Mary. We have Mary Richardson and Sam Lee who are both Connecticut librarians. Thank you so much for being on Where We Live this morning.
0: Thank you. We had a great time. Thank you.
2: I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.